welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hi, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. And this week, our family resources editor, Miranda Spencer, will be interviewing public health expert Jennifer Barkin. Before I hand over to Miranda, I wanted to tell you about an exciting upcoming online conference that may be of interest. From August the 24th to the 27th, 2022, the JAEC Foundation and the University of Almeria are sponsoring the 26th International Network Meeting for the Treatment of Psychosis. The Congress will consider the story of open dialogue and aims to share knowledge and experience from different settings, cultures and contexts. Across the three days, there will be guest speakers, practical workshops, discussion sessions and much more. International speakers include Jaco Sekula, Olga Runciman, Robert Whittaker, Daniel Fisher, Kermit Cole, Raffaella Pocobello, Alexander Smith, Russell Rosak, Christine Nyquist and many more. Registration is now open and early birds can register for €100. Euros. To find out more and to register, visit this web address, bit.ly forward slash odcongress. Once again, that's bit.ly forward slash odcongress. And you can find that link also in the podcast show notes. Okay, and now on to our interview. Welcome to Mad in the Family. I'm Miranda Spencer, Family Resources Editor. May is Maternal Mental Health Month, and although we tend to hear a lot about postpartum depression, as our guest today has pointed out, perinatal distress is really a spectrum of reactions. Childbirth and new parenthood are major life transitions that involve physical, psychological, and practical changes. These changes may interfere a little or a lot in a mother's ability to function optimally and, in turn, affect her relationship with the child and the child's development. Today's global crises, including climate change, the pandemic, and war, can add an additional layer of stress, so normalizing the experience is more important than ever. Today we'll be talking with public health expert Jennifer Barkin, PhD, MS, a professor and vice chair in the Department of Community Medicine and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mercer University School of Medicine in Georgia. A biostatistician and psychiatric epidemiologist, Dr. Barkin was formerly an analyst at the University of Pittsburgh Epidemiology Data Center, where she designed the Barkin Index of Maternal Functioning. The index is the first patient-centered wellness assessment tool focusing on mothers' daily lives during the first year after giving birth. She is also a peer reviewer for journals, including Archives of Women's Mental Health, and serves on the board of directors for Postpartum Support International, Georgia chapter. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Miranda. You work in the field of public health with your recent research focusing on the mental health of mothers and children. And your particular emphasis is on what we could broadly call environmental stressors. On one hand, the tensions inherent in being a new mom, which is a huge life transition. And on the other, parenting in the context of extreme weather events under climate change. So let's look at first at what you're most known for, which is the Barkin Index of Maternal Functioning. When, why, and how did you develop it? Yeah, so I developed that actually during my doctoral studies. And uh, the reason that we developed when I was at the University of Pittsburgh as a doctoral student and into my postdoc at Western Psychiatric uh, Institute and Clinic, which is part of the University of Pittsburgh medical system, 
And the reason that I developed it was I kind of linked up with a sort of famous reproductive psychiatrist named Dr. Kathy Wisner. And she was, um, would say, you know, we have a lot of depression screens and anxiety screens, but what we don't have is a good measure of maternal functioning in the postpartum period. And, you know, her kind of rationale, because I didn't know much about this particular part of psychiatry at the time, even though my background was in mental health research, but she would say, you know, patients don't present for treatment wanting to get a, a certain score on the uh, Edinburgh postnatal depression scale. They want to function better every day. And their role as mother, you know, wife, employee, member of society, et cetera. So the functioning was kind of a core goal for the patient. But then we approach it more through like a mood assessment mode. So that is really how I got the idea. And that kicked off my doctoral work in developing the Barkin Index. Um, one feature I think that's particularly attractive about it is that we developed the items after interviewing 30 plus postpartum women. So we went right to the population that's experiencing the condition of interest to populate the content for the survey. So instead of us academicians going off on our own and making up the questions, we asked the women to define what does a good day look like, what does a bad day look like, and everything in between. So it had what's called content validity uh, right off the bat because we used input from people that know what they're talking about, basically, postpartum women. Right. So what kind of um, questions are on there? Yeah, so it asks uh, it asks about everything from your own care of yourself to um, adjustment over time as a mother. Now, this is self-rated, right? So the mothers are rating themselves. Um, it asks about like adult interaction. Are you getting enough adult interaction? Everything from how do you feel feeding and diapering and sort of infant care tasks are going to how well do you think you're juggling the other parts of your life? And how well are you taking care of yourself? Are you getting what you need? So you could really use this as two scales, like a maternal competency scale. And then there's a second subset that are more self-care items, which I think are one of the most important parts because women generally understand how to change diapers and how to you know, get their baby to feed. And that, that all kind of works itself out. What I think the biggest struggle is the self-care part because you'll have mothers say, when I became, when you become a mom, it's all about your kids. It's not about you anymore. And then kind of the same mom maybe would say in the same focus group, yeah, but if I'm not happy, you know, the family's going to suffer. So my happiness is important. And I think that tension between that kind of ambiguity around the role of self-care and maybe even guilt, if you do take care of yourself as a woman, is um, a major learning curve and area of weakness for a lot of women. So if you scored low on it, what would that mean or what would be done with it that's different for something like a postpartum depression or suicidality kind of scale? Yeah, so it it doesn't indicate anything for depression. You would use this as like a complement or a supplement for a depression screen. So there's nothing on there about suicide suicidality or suicidal ideation. So there's nothing that would indicate that. That's why the depression screen is still really important. Now, there is a question. There are two questions. One is about anxiety and one is about worry. 
but there's nothing on there that asks about thoughts of self-harm. So that piece of it, you'd get more from a depression measure. This is more, what parts of this role are you struggling with and what parts are you doing well at? And that would kind of indicate what type of kind of support you needed around skills improvement. One of the things that was interesting to me is I work with clinicians every day, but maybe in the past two years, I've had some growing interest from occupational therapists. And they'll they'll say to me, you know, when I saw this measure, I thought it was made for occupational therapy because that's what they do. They help people function better. Who are some of the other uh, people that use it and how? Yeah. So it's being used in community-based settings and academia. It's probably the biggest use. Um, in clinical settings and to our surprise in industry, so commercial research type situations. Within the clinical world, uh, psychiatrists use it, psychologists, like I said, occupational therapists. And sometimes I don't even know about the use. Like I'll hear somebody say, oh, I went to a conference and I saw slides on your measure and you know they're using it at whatever state hospital and I, I don't know about it. A lot of the times I do know about it um, because people will want collaboration or if they want to publish the results, they'll want kind of me on board to help them publish the results and interpret the findings. Sometimes if it's a really independent, strong research group, they don't, they don't even tell me. So I have a good sense of a lot of the users, but I don't know all of them. So I understand that the bargain index has been validated across cultures. In other words, it gives us useful information about what new moms are going through that allows for different contexts. Can you talk more about that? There's been recent um, considerable interest actually in the Middle East. So it's been used in Iran several times for studies looking at uh, mental health and women. And what they do first is they they kind of take it and they do something called a cultural adaptation, where if there are any sort of words or phrases within the items that don't, they're not wrong. We weren't expressing them incorrectly, but they don't quite translate the same way to, in their culture, they'll do something called a cross-cultural adaptation, and then they'll translate it and implement it in their population, collect whatever data they want and look at kind of correlations with other constructs and sociodemographic variables, et cetera. So that that was done in Iran. Um, It's been done in Turkey. We have a big project we're working on in Saudi Arabia and Jeddah um, on the coast where we had 650 women, I think, fill out the the Barkin Index with a battery of other measures. And we just looked at the validity of the measure in Saudi Arabian women and the um, parameters, the statistics turned out beautifully. So it's highly reliable and valid in Saudi Arabian women. So um, it's being used in Australia, uh, Italy. And like I said, I know a lot of the users approach me for collaboration. I probably don't know about all the usage. Sometimes I'll get like a alert that, hey, your, your reference was cited. And then I'll look it up and say, oh, this was used in with such and such research group. But um, heavy interest right now in the Middle East, I would say, and there's a good amount of interest in Australia. But I, like I, I've been contacted by you know uh, investigators in England, Italy, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's really mm-hmm. encouraging. And I would say since I developed the website, and I don't know if this co- is coincidental or it is driven by the website. Lately, I would say interest has picked up even more. What do you think? Um... 
is the reason for this growing interest? I think the website definitely helps with visibility. I think, you know, the more it's published, the more people see it in papers. And the other thing, honestly, is that there's only one other measure that claims to assess functioning in the postpartum. And it's called the Inventory of Functional Status After Childbirth. And it was wonderful foundational work, but there are some flaws um, in the formulation of the calculation of the total score in terms that it, it specifically it penalizes the woman for not resuming all of her pre-childbirth activities. So if you were on the PTA and you know you jogged every day and et cetera, et cetera, then you had baby. And then afterwards you gave up five of your six activities or you reprioritized, which by the way is a healthy process. Right. It's not a bad thing to reprioritize. It's your, you know, your psyche and your emotions and everything else telling you that you need to change some things around. But it it kind of penalizes um, a woman for having done that. So it makes it sound more pathological when actually it's just a, a life adjustment. I don't know if I would call it pathological, but it almost makes it look like if you if you change things, you're not adjusting well, when really that could be an indicator that you're adjusting really well. And and the other thing is, and I, I hate to, I don't want to criticize the work, it's pretty long. It's a little bit burdensome for, you know, if you're in a clinical trial and you're filling out eight questionnaires and, you know, anything that's real convoluted in terms of item wording or just really burdensome is you've got to wonder, are, are your participants engaged? You know, I, I know any of us that have gone to the doctor and filled out like the fifth medical history form that seems like it's repetitive, you just get frustrated, which is what you do not want when someone's filling out a survey. So it, it was, I think there were some issues with administration and the definition of motherhood. I don't, I don't think it was a very modern measure. And that again, if you did not resume activities before pre-childbirth activities, you were dinged for it, which, you know, is not, it, it could be a sign of health, the exact opposite that you decide, you know what, I, I'm overburdened here and I've got to cut out X, Y, and Z. Okay, so based on the index in which low scores show more distress and high scores show better mood and functioning, what seems to be stressing mothers out versus what helps them thrive? I would say, to be honest, and I'm a little bit biased on this, I think some of what a, a big problem in women is that they do not recognize their own signs of burnout, right? So we would hear women in our more affluent focus groups say, well, my husband, he's, he's great with the kids, but I just can't leave them alone with him because, you know, he'll feed them hot dogs or he won't, you know, do this right or that right. And instead of the healthier response would be, I'm really burned out. I'm snapping at everyone. I'm, you know, not seeing things clearly because I need a break. It'll be fine if they're with my husband for two hours and he feeds them corn dogs or doesn't have them brush their teeth. That would almost be a healthier response than what, what you hear is sort of a hypervigilance that's unhealthy. And I think that awareness is something we need to develop in women because they're not always good at sensing when they're getting burned out. Now, mm -hmm. that said, that all rolls into this idea of self-care. 
the activities related to self-care are not as broad if you have less resources, right? So if you have financial resources, you have human capital, you've got social support, you have all of that, you can have a babysitter and pay for them and go out with your husband for a night or join a gym, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't have trusted, you know, child support backup and you don't have, you know, an excess of, of financial resources where you're really strapped, that self-care looks really different, right? You're not going to go buy a massage and you may have multiple children and you don't have a, another trusted caregiver. So in that scenario, you have to be a little more creative. Now, reading a book for 10 minutes can be a, an act of self-care, taking a walk. What I've heard in lower income women, and this is really fascinating, is that one way they take care of themselves is to include their children in the activity. So one woman said to me, when I'm really stressed, she worked at a grocery store, I will go and buy up the flower arrangements when they're like a deep discount. And me and my daughter will make flower arrangements at our house, which is a way that she didn't need a babysitter. It was soothing to her. It made her daughter happy and it was low cost. So, you know, I think that that was like a beautiful example of how to take care of yourself in a, in, in a way, a simplistic way that didn't, wasn't really resource intensive. But I think that self-care piece is huge. You know, if you're strapped for resources, that's going to tax anybody, no, no matter how good you are at self-care. You know, there comes a, a point where you just don't have the time, the money, et cetera, et cetera, to take care of yourself. So, you know, I, I'm not being naive when I talk about self-care. I know that it's resource dependent to some degree. Yeah. And what, and, and self-care is the thing that, that seems to help. And I, I gather some of the other research shows that skills building and programs that just provide assistance um, cause people's scores to go up, meaning that they're thriving better and they're less stressed out. Yeah. And, and that kind of rolls into the whole, you know, if you look at social support in general, social support is protective for mental health and not just in, in postpartum and pregnant women, just across the board. It's generally a helpful thing, just like maintaining a healthy weight is generally a healthy thing and not being sedentary is a healthy thing. It's pretty consistent. Um, so some of these better home home visiting programs are like the Jewish Family and Children's Services uh, visiting moms program where they'll have a volunteer go into the home and help the mom with whatever she needs, hold the baby while the mom answers emails or you know, uh, hold the baby while the mom does a load of laundry. Uh, anything that she needs, it's kind of tailored support from volunteers. So yes, the, I think those programs are all really helpful. Now, here's the thing. Some of those programs or a lot of them are concentrated in cities. The cities have the mental health infrastructure. Rural areas do not. So yeah, again, it gets to that whole, you know, that's an act of self-care to some degree, participating in a program like that, because you're, you're allowing someone to help you. But if you're in an area where, you know, you don't even know that exists and there, that, you know, there aren't a lot of assets in the community, you know, again, all of those circumstances, you know, cause a tension that is hard to alleviate from just good management. It's just you, the resources aren't there. Now that said, um, there's a group called Postpartum Support International, and they're a global 
we have a really strong chapter in Georgia and they offer all kind of free programs for women. You just need like, you know, basically internet access and you can do like peer support groups. You can call um, a 1-800 line for free and get assistance, Uh, tons of free resources. All you need is a phone or a computer. Now that may not substitute for in-person counseling or something like that. If you got into mental health trouble in the postpartum or during pregnancy, but it's it's a lifeline for these rural areas that don't don't have the, the the home visiting programs and the you know the licensed counselors that specialize in perinatal. Mm-hmm. Would someone's doctor or whoever perhaps would use the index or whatever or see the new mother know about postpartum international and be able to refer the person, um, which could help offset you know, them becoming, having worse mental health later? Um, Or is this something that um, not that many primary care providers know about? Yeah. So it's a really well-known organization in perinatal mental health circles. It is definitely not benign. However, I think that if you traveled around the state of Georgia, and I'm sure this is true of many other states, you went to the rural areas, there would be a lot of PCPs that had never heard of them. And that they know that, that as an organization, they know that building out in rural areas and building awareness is something that's a goal of theirs. So, and, and to be honest, that's not just PSI. That's every organization that is attempting to do this very thing, you know, help perinatal women have the same struggle because they're always born out of the urban areas that have all the hospitals and all the different types of specialists. And so that is a goal and a shortcoming, but a goal and they're aware of it, of most of these organizations that rural areas need to be, you know, more aware, educated on the services they provide because it's um, postpartum support international in, in particular is really impressive. They are very built out, well-established, well-organized, and help in a whole bunch of different ways, including even dads that have postpartum depression. Kind of family supports built in there. That's great. Um, So moving on to a different index, um, you and your colleagues are developing another index to measure distress and resilience called the Climate Distress Index. We covered it briefly um, at Mad America a while back. Can you remind us what the Climate Distress Index is and update us where it stands today? Yeah, so the the Climate Distress Index is a measure. It's a brief self-report measure, so you would fill it out yourself. I mean, someone could administer it to you, but most likely you'd fill it out yourself. It takes about five, 10 minutes. We have a, a version that we're, that's in testing right now that we developed in the same way that we developed the Barkin Index. We first, to inform the item development, we interviewed people that were vulnerable to the effects of climate. So we interviewed agricultural workers in Georgia and Florida and um, mothers, working mothers. and um, coastal Floridians. So we would have like, you know, we would have liked to talk to people that have gone through the wildfires in California, et cetera, et cetera. But those were three groups that we thought we could get at pretty fast and get them on for an interview and talk through what makes you the most anxious about climate change. And Mm -hmm. so we took all that material, synthesized it, and we are in testing. We had like a draft version 
and you do what's called psychometric testing to see if it's reliable and valid. And the first pass through, the, the indicators look really good. So it hasn't been published yet, but it is pretty far along in the process. Mm-hmm. So how will it be used? I would say, you know, academia for sure, because academics do research and they need ways to measure stuff. So academia, uh, maybe community-based organiza- or climate organizations, especially if they're taking on any kind of like research activities. Uh, I, I couldn't, I, I personally do not see immediate clinical use on this. I, I have trouble seeing that just because we've only recently kind of broadly adopted the belief that yes, climate change is real. It is caused by man. <laughs> so yeah, we're still trying to educate both providers and the public. And I mean, healthcare providers do not, some do, but not all understand the the amount of damage this can cause across a number of organ systems, climate change. So I guess at this kind of, in a way, early stage in the game in terms of connecting the health effects of climate on a broader scale to both providers and the public, it's hard for me to picture clinical use right now. But I will tell you that with the Barkin Index, I we just never thought it would be used commercially. That was like a happy surprise. And with that, um, gained a lot of notoriety and kind of broadened my career and enriched it in ways that I couldn't have even possibly anticipated. We just didn't think anyone, because the way the license works is nonprofits use it for free. So academics use it for free. Um, Nonprofit organizations that aren't in academia use it for free, but for-profits pay a licensing fee and they work that through the University of Pittsburgh where I developed it. So um, I just, we didn't think that would happen. So I hate to, you know, I can't totally predict who all will use it, but I would say for sure I could bet on academia and possibly climate organizations that were engaging in research or some type of some type of screening, post-disaster screening. You know, hurricane hits, we're trying to gauge how well people are doing. Yeah. The point is you, somebody is actually looking at the mental health effects of, of climate change. So uh, you told me that mothers often get short shrift compared to kids when it comes to research on extreme weather events and climate-related issues. What particular things have you learned so far in research for the Climate Distress Index? So what are pregnant and postpartum moms telling you when it comes to their own climate-related concerns? Yeah, so women, and in general, I'll just say that we looked at extreme weather events in children to see what the psychological symptoms are. And a broader range of psychological symptoms have been studied in children. Uh, The work around mothers in the research area in terms of climate and mental health has largely been born out of two studies, one Project Ice Storm and the Queensland flood. So it isn't as rich or as varied as the child research. And this is not surprising at all because anyone in perinatal mental health will tell you that you know, they think that the way that we treat it in this country is, you know, it's like a piece of candy where the baby is the candy and the mom is the wrapper and you take the wrapper off and the candy, you know, you throw away the wrapper. So we're trying to change that and things have gotten a lot better in terms of import, recognizing the importance of women's mental health and perinatal mental health in particular, how that impacts the entire family unit. You can't talk about child health if the mother's not 
if you've got a really unhealthy caregiver. So that that's always an issue, not just in climate research, just in general. The the everybody is focused, and I think if if you start kind of looking more at the climate, even in the mainstream media around climate and mental health, it's much more focused on effects on the child. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I have two kids myself. I think about the effects of them on them all the time. But the mom is the you know generally. It, it, the research shows that even regardless of employment status, the mothers are the generally the primary caregivers and kind of the lioness of family health, right? So I'm the one that remembers my kid when my kids need shots or checkups or to brush their teeth and eat vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not uncommon, even though I work full time. Um, so, you know, what the role of women with climate change is really important. Because the mom's noticing if she has a fourth child that now needs an inhaler because the fourth child is having asthma, you know, and, and notices it's getting worse because air pollution and increased heat are linked. They exacerbate each other. So um, I think women are more acutely aware. And we, when we interviewed mothers, they would say things like, you know, are there going to be any animals around when my, you know, my kids get older? Or, um, you know, my, my son, for example, would say, mom, like, what about, what if all the bees die? What's going to happen? You know, what it's going to happen? So I think kids are more aware, which makes moms more aware. And mothers in general are more aware of kind of family health issues. So you might notice if your kids, your kids' asthma is getting worse. You know, my allergies got a lot worse uh, in the past five years. And I thought, what is going on here? That something is happening that is different. And that's that's climate awareness, right? So now when my kids sign up for tennis camp in the summer, I think, okay, we're in Georgia. You know, it can be 100 degrees. Do the camp counselors know how to handle that if it gets too hot? Do they, you know, are they aware of hydration issues and, you know, what, what that can do to the body when someone's overheated? So I think a lot of people are going to get caught flat-footed on the um, the heat illness issue. But as a mother, I'm acutely aware. The other thing is, um, you know, if you're worried about climate or you're aware and you're trying to conceive or you're thinking about conceiving, you know, you might, might think twice or you might have, have some anxiety based on the reports you're seeing in the media right now. It's it's pretty. If you're paying attention to the IPCC reports, it's we've got to act soon. So some people are saying, should I do I even want to be a mom? That's more from things I've read about and I've heard anecdotally. For the climate distress index, we interviewed mothers to ask them what makes you nervous about this in particular. And they would, uh, you know, the the biodiversity issue came up, the scarcity issue came up. Um, do we have enough time? One of the mothers said something like, "I almost feel like it's this is happening so fast. It's almost the way Jeff Bezos acquires money. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's hard to kind of even fathom how quickly this is happening." And so the time issue, do we have enough time? I think that's it. there have been several uh, reports in the media that women are driving 
the climate agenda. They're they're definitely kind of taking up the reins in terms of um, activism. And it makes total sense when you consider the relationship between the mother and the family health agenda. Have you seen in your interviews that mothers and their kids have some overlap in what they worry about? Or um, since you're only interviewing adults, you that wouldn't be clear. I mean, I just, I guess I think of what my own kids are worried about. They're getting more education in school about climate change. So, you know, my son will say to me, mom, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. You know, like, because there were, you know, they, they know that this is, time limited. We've got to act really fast before there's permanent damage. Some of it they say is already baked in. You know, there, there, there's been some damage done that can't be reversed. But um, yeah, we didn't interview children specifically. And the, the side we worked on with that was, okay, the child's been exposed to disaster. Now what were the psychological symptoms? With mothers, we interviewed them and we've done some research in the literature about you know, perinatal mental health as it relates to EWEs and extreme weather events. And what we heard was, you know, women saying that they were nervous that they their healthcare would be interrupted. So, you know, if you're pregnant, you need checkups fairly frequently. And if when you have a kid, you need well child visits fairly frequently. So if you were displaced because you, you know, you endure a hurricane, your healthcare might be interrupted. Uh, women worry about the evacuation process itself. You know, families, their whole family having access to healthcare. You know, schools reopening. Something, some of these things are basic. Healthcare, schools reopening, utilities, where are we going to live? How does this affect my healthcare during pregnancy and the postpartum? Uh, all of those things, that's a lot to worry about if you're pregnant or you just had a child. Almost sounds like the similar kinds of where you might have in wartime. Right. It's a disaster. And when you look at, you know, risk factors for perinatal mental health. So around that time is just, it's high vulnerability, right? One in five women will have, you know, either postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, some type of mood symptom about one in five. That's like, you know, one of the statistics that's floating around a lot right now is one in five will have a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. So that's, it's the most common complication of childbirth, which I don't know if everybody knows that, but it's, it's true. So it's already a vulnerable time frame. And trauma is one of the risk factors that kind of can amplify, you know, pre-existing issues there already. So trauma, if you look up some of the measures that assess trauma on right on there is natural disaster you know, having on a hurricane, et cetera, et cetera. And the higher the level of exposure. So were you wading through floodwaters with someone, you know, injured? Were you injured? Did you lose your home? The higher the level of loss, higher the level of exposure, the worse the mental health outcome. So that makes total sense. You know, if you were unscathed, you know, you're going to be able to rebound pretty quickly. If you got hit hard and incurred multiple losses, both financial and maybe health-wise or to your loved ones, it's going to take a little longer to repair. So going through something like that in pregnancy or postpartum is going to compound the existing potential for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Yeah. Last question. Do you have any thoughts on, or is there research that shows 
what might help mothers and parents in general better cope with these climate concerns emotionally? So one that comes up across the board is agency. So it makes me feel better to feel like I'm doing something to help protect the environment, like personally doing something. Those types of things people reported that made them feel better. Now, I say that with a caveat because that's a slippery slope. If it's all on you, you if you feel this intense personal responsibility to stop the climate crisis, you're going to burn out because none of us alone can tackle this. It's a major systemic. It's like the mother of all public health crises. It's just, it's huge. And I think when that level of personal responsibility gets amplified to a certain point, it can be counterproductive. So, you know, I can go and swap out my car for a hybrid and and now our, our power is, you know, wind and solar and I can do all of those things, but then I can't, you know, flog myself for using a plastic spoon one day. You know, you have to be realistic about it. It's almost like goals for fitness. If you, if you have an unrealistic goal and you can't meet it, it's going to discourage you. So you kind of carve out smaller steps that you can succeed at to feel a sense of achievement and to, you know, to be able to sustain and not give up and say, this is impossible. So I think kind of realistic goals. I know with two small kids working full time, I can't, I cannot go plastic free. I mean, that is such an intensive undertaking to go completely plastic free that I know I can't do it. I don't have the time to think through all those steps. But I can change my car and, you know, go to solar, et cetera. There are certain things that I can do within the amount of time and energy I have right now built into my life. So the agency, the agency thing is huge as long as it doesn't tip into, I feel so responsible that I'm making myself crazy every day trying to combat the climate crisis. And I'm guilting my husband if he you know, uses plastic utensils or something like that. I think that's where it gets really dangerous. Yeah. And it's also important to remember that, you know, on the policy level that for, you know, what oil companies are doing or whatnot on the much more institutional level, that's where the major change needs to take place. And perhaps we're better off, you know, lobbying our Congress people or educating ourselves about the bigger forces than feeling guilty about a plastic fork yes right no it, exactly um it's it's like a dysregulation right it, it's almost like when women can't stop and say i'm burned out i need to hand the reins off to my husband or my partner for you know a couple hours to get my it's almost like a dysregulation when it goes too far that sense of guilt and personal responsibility it tips into like an unhealthy zone i think but the other thing that, that I heard people say that helped them was even though children having awareness is a scary thing because it, it makes them more anxious in a lot of ways, it also makes people feel hopeful because if the next generation cares about this more than we did, maybe everything will be okay. So there's mm-hmm. kind of a sense of comfort in that too, The future generations Maybe we'll be better stewards of the earth than we have been. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other thoughts um, on perinatal mental health that I haven't brought up? 
or, re- or research findings that, that you wanted to mention? So this isn't so much a, a research, although it's probably a more general research finding. Um, I think that one thing that's hard for mothers, and I've noticed this in some of my friends, that it helps to have role models that were able to juggle career and family and personal fitness and, and across a number of domains effectively. That helps. I think that helps women in their own management of their life. And what I've noticed sometimes, and this is totally anecdotal, but it makes sense when women don't have strong, strong role models in that area, sometimes, oh, I feel guilty for having a career. I have, you know, the, the balance gets thrown off because they, they just don't, no one modeled it for them. And I think if you have strong female mentors that were able to juggle across certain, you know, several domains of their life and not, um, you know, short their kids in any way, or their, their kids felt like they were loved the whole time and they, they managed a career. I think it is really helpful. I think not having those role models, I, I have personally seen some of my friends really struggle to figure out how to kind of balance all that. Jennifer Barkin, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.